Welcome to My Time, My Life with Trinette Faint. On this season of my podcast, I'll be talking to a variety of people, from creative entrepreneurs to business owners to writers to entertainers and others, about being bold and courageous, overcoming obstacles, and taking risks, all in the name of chasing dreams and building a career. I hope their stories will inspire you on your own journey. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Lydia Finette, one of New York's most dynamic and compelling businesswomen and personalities. As a founder and CEO of the Lydia Finette Agency, Lydia represents best-in-class charity auctioneers. Before founding her agency, she spent more than two, get- two decades at the famed Christie's Auction House, serving as its global managing director of strategic partnerships. During her time there, she became the world's leading charity auctioneer and single-handedly raised over a billion dollars for more than 800 organizations around the world, standing alongside Bruce Springsteen, Hugh Jackman, Elton John, Matt Damon, and Jerry Seinfeld for some of the auctions she raised money for. Lydia is also the creator and host of the podcast, Claim Your Confidence, in collaboration with Rockefeller Center, launched after the success of her book of the same name. Her other best-selling book is The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, which was optioned by Netflix in 2022 for a series that will be produced by Shernan Entertainment, starring Kiernan Shuka as the lead. In addition to auctioneering, podcasting, and writing, Lydia travels the globe and speaks with companies, helping them to unleash their sales potential and public speaking capabilities. She also recently hosted her first Claim Your Confidence retreat. Hi, Lydia. How are you today? I'm well, Trinette. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so honored to be on. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much. You're so busy. I'm like really honored that you took the time to, uh, to come on my podcast today. Oh, I will always go on a podcast. I absolutely love joining people for them and I love having one. So I always appreciate being asked. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Let's dive in here. Tell us, where did you grow up and was an entrepreneurial spirit fostered in your environment? I grew up in a place called Lake Charles, Louisiana, which is mm-hmm. in Louisiana, but sort of closer to Texas than most people would think of New Orleans. Okay. And it's, I guess, was I, I'm trying to think that's such an interesting question about an entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, my father was an attorney, so I always saw my dad going off to do his job every day. And there was certainly a work ethic that came with the hours that he worked. One of his biggest clients was in London. So there was a lot of like, getting up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and my dad being in the study working. So working was always a huge part mm-hmm. of my childhood. Like that work ethic has always been very, very imbued in me from my dad. And mm-hmm. I don't know that it was entrepreneur. I don't know that it was entrepreneurial necessarily, but certainly mm-hmm. important. And yeah. business to me has always been very exciting and very important. I've always seen it as something that makes the world go around and right. gives you the opportunity to try things and do new things. So mm-hmm. I don't know that, I knew anything about being an entrepreneur when I was little, if I'm honest, but I sure like being an entrepreneur. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got it, girl. <laughs> um, who was the most confident person in your childhood that inspired you to aspire to find your own confidence and chase your dreams? I mean, kind of going back to what I just said about my dad, I mean, my dad has always been a supremely confident person. You know, as I said, he was a trial lawyer. So I remember mm. my mom taking us to watch him in court 
actually to and that fight takes some a special kind of confidence, really. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And never really any fear of asking people for things or doing things that he wanted to get done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he constantly embarrassed us by like kind of you know getting out of the line to do things because he didn't want to wait or all the different things that you know you want to die as a child when someone does around you. But I do think watching that as a child, even though it embarrassed me, was good understanding of what it could look like to just kind of realize what needed to be done to get there and mm-hmm. do it regardless of what other people around you. Right, right. That's an excellent lesson for a young woman to pick up growing up, um, coming into her own out into the world. Seriously. Yeah. And it's also, you know, I had an older brother and a younger brother and a younger sister. And my parents were very much the school of like, listen, one of you is doing it. You're all doing it. So we don't have time. You know, <laughs> there's not enough time. You know, my mom was a stay-at-home mom and she was amazing about making sure that we were at point A or point B or point C or point D. But there was a lot of like, does this person show any skill that could also put them into the same bucket as one of the other siblings, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so we all ended up playing soccer when I was little. My dad actually coached our team and he rented the field next to his office. It was just like a big, empty, open lot. And he rented mm-hmm. it so that he could coach us soccer players. I was not at all gifted, nor did I have any interest. So I would just do cartwheels everywhere. But, you know, he, <laughs> he brought my brothers up to like state championship levels just wow. because they really enjoyed it. And he really enjoyed kind of being part of it. So I don't know, there's something that's really fun about growing up with brothers and a really strong sister, because I think it makes you a little fearless in terms of mm. getting in front of people and asking for things and just sort of pushing in all directions because we're all so yeah. strong and independent. And like, there was always a fight if you didn't want to do something. And it teaches you how to engage and interact with different people. That is so interesting. I mean, I don't have siblings. I grew up an only child, but I kind of took away the same lessons or very similar lessons because I had no one else there. It was like just me and just, you know, kind of being tenacious and asking for things and doing things on my own, because if I didn't do something, it wasn't going to get done. Even though I had no one to <laughs> compete with anything with, there was still this sense of, you know, it's just you, you got to get out there and do it. Do it. Yeah. yeah. Just do it. Yeah. Like the Nike yeah. commercial says, just do it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, when you first, excuse me, when you first came to New York, what sorts of jobs did you have? Did you have before you worked at Christie's? Oh, I had such fun jobs before I worked at Christie's. So I was a waitress, which I absolutely loved, both um, Macaroni Grill in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and uh-huh. it's Chevy's Mexican Restaurant in San Diego, where I lived just right before I started my job at Christie's. I had the summer, and I loved being a waitress. I think I really got high marks because I was always super joyous and happy to be the waitress. I yeah. think my ability to get things to the kitchen and get the right order in was not so great. Um, and so a lot of times I would be using my charm at the back being like, Hey guys, I forgot another dinner entree that I was supposed to put in. Can you do this really quickly? So I've always relied on the ability, like kindness gets you really far in life. People don't really realize like how a big smile and just like winning personality can get you further than a lot of your own skills that you may not possess naturally. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really learned that as a waitress. I was like, listen, my detail here is not 100%, but my social skills are 120%. So where those fall apart, like people are always fine to wait for an entree if you come back and you're like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, this just happened. This is my first day. We're going to get through this together. Just like, yeah. It is what it is, right? I mean, I waited tables uh, for an earlier part of my life, and especially through college. And there is something about waiting tables that is 
excellent training ground for anything that you want to do out of life. Yeah. Waiting tables and working retail. Every single person should have to do those things before they take any kind of like long-term career job because yeah. you learn so much about people. And like you say, it's all problem solving anyway. Totally. Um, yes. You know, and finessing. Thinking on your feet. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Interpersonal communication. You know, when you're dealing now perhaps with a tough corporate client, you know, it's the same kind of tact you would approach a table and be like, I forgot to put your pasta in, but yeah. you know, here's a soda and some more bread in the meantime. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> I'm like, I know a song that I'd like to sing you. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. It's so funny. You know, I think about even when I go to restaurants now, I watch and obviously I, I'm in sales. I, I love sales. I love the sort of breakdown of the selling method. You know, one of the, I think one of the most interesting things about having a job like that, I never worked retail, but I often think to myself as I watch someone pick up like 30 sweaters and then put them all down, mm -hmm. like someone has to fold those. You know, there's always a back end yeah. process that you don't see when you walk in, but that's really the way my mind has always worked. And it's even as a waitress, it's like if you walk in and the person who's greeting you at the hostess stand is like unfriendly and puts you in a bad mood, as the waitress, you take that when someone sits down, right? If right, someone's waited right. a long time and they finally sit down, then you take that as the waitress. And it, I always think it's like how you change someone's environment with your personality mm -hmm. is such an incredible way to react to the world and mm -hmm. really showcases the power of positivity, which I truly believe is like one of those things that I don't, I don't know how people don't see how much of an impact you can make just by coming at things with a good attitude. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, Yes. A lot of people don't see that. <laughs> yeah. But, but the thing is, if you know it, then you've, I feel like you've unlocked the secret of the world, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. Thousand percent. Um, when you started your auctioneering career, did you have any mentors that steered you in that direction or did you discover this sort of niche field on your own? I really discovered it by reading an article in Vanity Fair magazine when I was in college. I didn't know anything about auctioneering. I didn't know anything about the art world. And it was really this article kind of captured my imagination. It was mm -hmm. about Princess Diana's dresses being sold at a place called Christie's Auction House. And it was 97. It was my junior year in college. And it just became something of like an obsession for me that I was going to figure out mm. how to get an internship or start working at a place like this. And basically just told every single person I knew. And it was like one person led to another person led to another person who somehow had known someone who worked there. You know, it was just like a hundred yeah. different bizarre connections. I mean, I remember telling my parents that I wanted to work at Christie's and they're like, never heard, like, what is this place? <laughs> um, my parents were always like, sure, but we don't know what it is. But yeah, that sounds great. You should do that. Um, which is a huge <laughs> testament to them as well. But, you know, I think once I realized it was there and I got my foot in the door, I wouldn't say that I really had a mentor so much as I just kind of found my people. Like I really mm. have always, even though through my 24-year career there, I would say I had these unbelievable opportunities, but one of the greatest mm -hmm. parts about that company were always the people who I was surrounded with. They're so yeah. intelligent and curious and interested in the world. They're mm -hmm. well-traveled because of their jobs. And they just kind of felt like a deeper understanding of of the sort of context of the world. I mean, having an art right. background teaches you so much because you have to understand through the lens of social, economic, political, like that's why art's created. And so always found that to be really exciting part of the job. I mean, the conversations you must have had with your um, colleagues back then must have always been, you know, surprising and amazing, just like the level of, of culture that, yes. um, that, 
you know, you constantly have to consume and be aware of and, you know, diversity of the world, really. You, yeah. know, you have art and different things coming from different places all over the world. That's really fascinating. Yeah. I would be sitting next to someone at lunch and then an hour later, I'd be like, I never knew that much about Chinese export porcelain. In fact, I did not even realize it was a thing, you know, that it was just everybody there had like a PhD in some obscure thing that we sold and therefore had ended up overworking the company for you know, 5, 10, 15 years. Because a lot of people when I was there, I mean, I was mm -hmm. there for 24 years and there were people who were there just 30 and 40. I mean, you think about that now where people are like, you know, I have a lot of informational interviews with younger women. And they're like, well, I've been here for a year, so I feel like maybe it's time for me to leave. I'm like, sure, you know, do what you want, but you can also <laughs> stay for a little bit longer. Um, I thought, I mean, I loved it. It was kind of like I grew up there in many ways, yeah. which was a true gift. And I love being in environments like that where, you know, it just kind of forces you to elevate your own like intellectual game when you're around such smart, curious people. I had a similar experience when I worked uh, for uh, the president and provost of Harvard once upon a time, um, sitting in that office. Oh my God. Like I thought I knew smart people before and I certainly did, but this was like next level <laughs> and just like overhearing conversations when people would come in for meetings, uh, you know, various deans and professors and whatnot. It was, it was amazing. It was like going to school, like all over again. Um, so I, I totally get that. I totally get that. Um, tell me, Lydia, when you started your agency, did you feel that it was more of a leap of faith or did you feel like you were adequately prepared to do it when you left Christie's? Oh, I felt like it was just such an obvious white space that once I mm. saw it in my head, there was no way I could unsee it. You know, a friend of mine yeah. had said, she still says, my friend Mary Giuliani is like, I'm the person who told you to do that. I told you to do this years ago, which might very well be true. But I think mm -hmm. we hear things or we remember things when we want to. And and I think when I was at Christie's, I could never have thought about doing that. It just it, it didn't even really come to mind. But then left with, you know, I had left my full-time job at Christie's and became an ambassador. So for mm -hmm. a year, I wasn't in the office for the first time since college. You know, I worked in this mm -hmm. very corporate job going from, you know, I would like to say it was 9 to 5, but it was more like 9 to 12, meaning midnight every night. Um, yeah, yeah. It didn't give you a lot of time for additional thought outside of like what your job was and you're putting up, putting out fires from above. And I had teams of people, so I was putting out fires from below. So it doesn't allow you that sort of just quiet space that you need sometimes right. to really ideate. Right. And when I was not in an office full time and I had time to just travel or do things that did not mean being on a subway at a certain time or have any rigor to the day in the way that it had before, mm -hmm. I had time to think about what that could look like. And when the idea came to me, I was like, oh, that's it. Like, that's what it should be. So launching the agency, right. I, already, I already knew it would work because there were so many people who came to me anyway to ask for recommendations. Mm -hmm. The difference with starting the auctioneering agency was that instead of just giving people's name and information, I was not only vetting them, but I was training them. And uh, so yeah. if I'm sending someone out who's part of the Lydia Finnett agency, I have either train them myself or train them years ago and have watched them progress. So right. there's no unknown for me. And when somebody reaches out to book an auction, book me for an auction and they're like, oh, I can't come on this day. It's in this location. We have this many people. This is the cause. I'm like, these are the three people. I will contact them all. These are their rates. Let me know what you think. And then, mm -hmm. and that's it. And so it doesn't in any way, shape or form feel anything natural to me at this point. Yeah. Yeah. 
I get what you're saying. Like once you have that realization, you're like, I can never unrealize that or unsee it. Yeah. And you're just compelled to go. You just do yeah. it. Exactly. Just exactly. Do it. And it's so, so fun. When you're, what'd you say? And it's so it's fun. fun. Yeah. 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 It's really fun. Um, speaking of fun, that leads to my next question. When you're on stage, uh, standing next to some of these celebrities, who bears the more pressure to raise more money? Is it you or is it Jerry Seinfeld? They don't, they don't come on stage thinking that they have to raise anything. Like, they just come <laughs> on stage and look at me. And it's actually always the funniest <laughs> thing for me because people will look at me like, what do I do? And these are some of the biggest celebrities in the world, but they don't yeah. know what to do. And I know. And so I come to this they're place where element. they're completely out of their element. Like I've taken so many auctions with Hugh Jackman over the years and we get mm -hmm. on stage and he's like, go to work. He's like, he's like, I don't even need to. He's like, they want me up here, but like, I don't, Lydia, just do your thing. Cause he knows that I don't need Hugh Jackman at that point. I will call him out and be like, ladies and gentlemen, like I'll be like, Hugh Jackman will shake your hand. Hugh Jackman will sign your shirt. Like I'll make Hugh Jackman do things, but Hugh Jackman is not an auctioneer. He doesn't want to be an auctioneer, you know? And so I use Hugh Jackman for what he is, which is this world renowned mm -hmm. celebrity who everybody wants a piece of, and mm -hmm. that is an auctioneer I can sell. So I don't think that the celebrities, I think if they felt any pressure, they would immediately not feel pressure because they would be like, this woman is doing something. That I don't even know what she's doing, but people seem to be giving her a lot of money, which is usually my feedback from my job. She's doing something that I don't know how to do, but people seem to be giving her money. <laughs> what advice do you have for women looking to be auctioneers? Ooh, start public speaking, start getting mm. out there. If you want to be an auctioneer, you know, there's the traditional route, which of course is through an auction house. So yep. if you intern and you work for an auction house, if you want to be an auctioneer for an auction house, you uh, you also have to have a full-time job there. You can't just be an auctioneer for an auction house. But if you want to be a charity auctioneer, you know, public speaking, getting comfortable on stage, volunteering your time to MC for organizations, getting to know organizations, watching other auctioneers on stage. Mm -hmm. Those are all critical pieces, but nothing replaces public speaking training as much as public speaking. <laughs> and right. it's one of those things that people hate it. So they're like, how can I get better at public speaking? I'm like, you have to public speak more, but I don't want to. I'm like, but unless you do, you're not going to get better. Um, you know, it's good to get to the point, I think, as a public speaker where there's almost no, there's nothing except maybe like a little jolt of excitement right before you mm -hmm. get on stage. You know, it mm -hmm. happens to me all the time. People will hand me a microphone and just say, could you make a quick speech about this? You know, I'm always the person at a wedding. I'm like, I mean, I don't know them. Should I give them a speech? Like I could come up with something on the fly <laughs> just because I don't worry about getting in front of people. And that's what you need as an auctioneer. You need the ability yeah. to not worry about the public speaking part of it because there's so many components when you get up there that you have to do on top of that. I would almost argue that people would, should consider um, taking voice lessons as yeah. well. Like not even to sing per se, but just have the confidence to get the confidence to stand there and open your mouth and actually say something yeah. and sing something and, and, uh, allow yourself that vulnerability. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. A lot of people in the past couple of years, I use comedy very heavily in my auctioneering just because I'm in crowds of people who aren't even bidding. So it's like, you have to keep it entertaining. And I've had a lot of people say to me, so are you like an improv comedian who takes auctions? I'm like, no, Inverse. I am an auctioneer who also has improv training because of being on stage for 20 years. And I think that's a huge part of this entire thing. It's like putting yourself out there, trying different things. 
But yeah. I do also think improv comedians could be amazing auctioneers as long as they realize that they can't call someone. Because there is right. definitely a line when you're asking people for money. You cannot insult them. It does not work. <laughs> I would think not. <laughs> but I've seen it happen and I'm like, oh, oh no, oh no. And now we're on the other side. Do you still get nervous when you take the stage? I don't get nervous. I get really excited. Like right mm. before I go up, I can kind of feel my heartbeat, especially for a new one. You know, mm -hmm. one of the things about having been on stage in New York for so many years is there are very few venues that I haven't been on before. Yep. You know, there's Cipriani 42nd Street is a beautiful space in New York City. It's an old bank building. It's, I mean, really the first time I went in there, I was like, this is the most stunning thing I've ever seen in my life. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm there three times a week now. And it's interesting, like it's to the point that the event planner tells people how I like the orientation of the room before mm. the event. Like I'll come in and they're like, well, Janet told us that you like the vertical orientation. I'm like, this is an incredible thing that this is happening like this. But what it's I've like learned- It's like your second from, home. It feels like, and that's my point. Like it literally feels like my second home. So when I walk on the stage, it's, it's the same as like walking on a stage anywhere. It doesn't feel scary or nerve wracking to me. But yeah. every once in a while, I'll have one. You know, I take this huge one at the Bob Woodrow Foundation. And that one used to be at Madison Square Garden, which is mm -hmm. 7,000 people. Wow. Standing backstage at that one, I was with, and you referenced him earlier with Jerry Seinfeld. I was with Bruce Springsteen. And I'm standing backstage like, what am I doing here? <laughs> and they all went out and were just joking around. They're like, oh, now we need someone to raise money. And it's like the biggest comedians in the world. They're like, can you guys get Lydia out here? <laughs> I was like, oh, this is a real moment in my life. So walking out on a stage like that the first year, I was like, whoa. But, you know, by year four, I was like, ah, MSG. Played yeah. it once, you played it many times, I guess. <laughs> so I think it's like anything. You get comfortable with it over time. Yeah, yeah. Practice, practice, practice. Practice, um, practice. If you can share, what has been the biggest mistake that you've learned in your career and how did you grow from it? Oh, so many mistakes along the way. You know, I feel like I've learned so much from every time I've made a mistake. You know, I talk about this mm -hmm. one and the most powerful one, the most powerful woman in the room is you, where I told everyone that I secured this massive sponsorship deal for a huge collection that we were selling before it had happened based mm -hmm. on a word, like based on a, oh, this is going to happen. And then later came to find out it wasn't going to happen and had to tell everyone so a lot of times I like to say, like, you know, keep the really big things that you're really excited about close to your chest until they've yeah. actually happened. Because I tend to be the person who's like, this is all going to happen. It's going to be amazing. And that's not the way the world works, right? So wait till the contract sign. That's one thing. Um, you know, I think a lot of the things I learned and the mistakes I made, I wouldn't take back. But I think in my, mm -hmm. the sort of later part of my career at Christie's, which I loved as a company for so long, like, I was done with Christie's and I think in many ways, like they were still trying to figure out exactly how I could work within the four walls. And yep. I was done with Christie's in the sense that I was done, but I couldn't accept that I was done because mm -hmm. I loved it so much. It was like a dress mm -hmm. that I loved that just didn't fit anymore. You know, it just didn't And you had this... a whole family there. And I had a whole family and I had, you know, 20 plus years of history. And, you know, I think right. especially towards the end of my career there, I should have just said, it's been great. Like, I'd like to transition into an ambassador role. Let's just call this what it was. And I just didn't have enough confidence to do it. I think I was scared on my own that I would go out on my own. And like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the way that things ended at Christie's was great. You know, it, it ended exactly the way that it should have. 
mm-hmm. at the time I was kind of like, oh my God, am I really leaving this place? Like, is this really happening? But yeah. it was the best thing that could have ever happened. So although I think mistakes were made just over the course of my career and not making that decision earlier, I don't regret the last couple of years I ended up there because mm-hmm. I think that they gave me the confidence to understand that I really am going to do this on my own. And it's been so great ever since I left. So it's amazing when someone else sees something in you that, that you know, you know, was there deep down, but you haven't found quite your voice yet or enough of your own confidence to just kind of take the big step and do it. And then yeah. when you do it, it's just like the universe provides it's yes. an amazing thing when that happens. It's so true. You know, a really good friend of mine said to me once we were, I was interviewing him for a presentation and he had been working for a company for a really long time and his wife was an entrepreneur and Mm -hmm. he was always kind of like looking over his shoulder at her and she was just having a whale of a time. You know, he was definitely making more money, but she just loved her company. She loved her job and he just had no passion for his anymore. And he got fired from his job Mm. and he said to her, he's like, I'm done with the like drip daily drip of this paycheck, like a drug that I can't do without. And he's like, I think if I didn't have that, I would never have worked there. And she's like, well, then come work with me and we could do this together. And so ultimately that's what happened for them. And I mean, they travel with their kids all over the world. They have this amazing life. And he's like, do I make as much money as I used to? No. Is my quality of life a 10 out of 10? Yes. And so I, I always thought about that, like when I was leaving Christie's and I think ultimately for me, the beauty of working in the auction world is you never really make a lot of money. So it's so nice to be in a place now where the sky's the limit, you know, and as I said earlier, what I learned from my father is the work ethic. And because I have such a strong work ethic and am not afraid to be tired and do the thing and get back on stage night after night, like the sky's the limit. And that's such an exciting thing. Yeah. It's incredible. I love your energy. Lydia, it's infectious. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of it. I just interviewed Mark Murphy on my podcast, The Landmark Chef, and he said that his his doctor was like, yes, you've been diagnosed with, what could I call it? Oh, a joie de vivre. And I was like, I think I have that condition too. I was like, I think I'm going to borrow that. I've been, I've been diagnosed with a joie de vivre. Um, so tell us about your recent Claim Your Confidence retreat and what was an important takeaway for you? It was such a great retreat. You know, honestly, Trinette, I talk a lot in Claim Your Confidence about putting yourself out there and trying things that make you uncomfortable. And I had been called by the Shusugi Bon House in the Hamptons, maybe Mm -hmm. last year, the guy who was working Mm -hmm. on a consulting project. And he said, you know, have you ever thought about doing a retreat? And I was sort of like, you know, I have, but I don't really have the time to find a place and put everything together. And he was like, we're looking to do our first retreat. We're kind of in the same place. Would you ever, if we sent you everything, like think about what that might look for you. And there's that I universe always, again. There's that universe. And I always yep. think to myself, like if there's a, there's, if there's a part of me that is nervous and excited about something, then I should try it. And if there's yep. a part of me that is like, I don't want to do that, then I should never do it because not only will I not do it, I'll do it badly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I will do it like a horse being dragged as opposed to like the joyful joy to be of leaping of a horse, which is how I was towards this retreat idea. So they sent me the, the basically the entire retreat. They're like four days, design whatever you want. And so I came up with 11 wow. different workshops and I picked all the things from their menu that could like scatter in so that we would spend time together as a group, but the people could also get the wellness facilities and all the things mm-hmm. that this amazing retreat had. And I sent it back to them and they emailed me back within a couple of days and they were like, you know, we love this idea. 
okay, so this is August of last year. Mm. Then I didn't hear anything from them until October. And I'm a big believer in like timing is everything. You yeah. don't, yeah. you know, I just I'm never, I don't push when things don't work. I'm like, if it's supposed to happen, it'll come back around. Maybe not even in that form. Like that's right. the true right. entrepreneur right. in me. I'm like, we'll try something else. And maybe there's another route in like, you never know. Exactly. And so in October, I got a call from the guy who set up the whole thing. He's like, Hey, we're, we're ready to move forward. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> like, It's in January. Like it's in, like, this is the end of October. I was like, he's like, do you want to do it? And I was like, I mean, I guess the worst is no one comes, right? Like, that's not a great thing, but like, sure. So we announced in October with all these materials. And like, I didn't even have the heart to like call Shusubiban and ask them how many people were coming because I was so scared of the number. And a couple of weeks later, I was like, hey, like, how many do you have? They're like, we have four people. Okay, four people for a four-day retreat. I'm like, oh, um, so embarrassed. And then I told my husband, because I kind of needed to just tell someone, he's like, well, the best retreat they've ever had. Like, you'll have a great time. And I was like, you know what, you're right going to do this. Yeah. And so we kept putting it out and people, people started coming, people started coming. And so we ended up with this amazing group of people. We had 12 people over the course of the weekend and it was just the most magical thing. Honestly, so much learning. I had such a great time getting to know these women. They loved it so much. And, and truthfully, you know, if it went well, that people want to do it again. And so we're actually going to announce in the next couple of weeks that we're doing it the same weekend next, next January. It's like a perfect time of year because it's cold and dark and people just wanted to get out and be somewhere else. And yeah. they got to be in this like heavenly spot surrounded by people who are ready to support them. So A plus, I would do it a hundred times to, again. I loved it. Plan. <laughs> way more time. Have, but I was like, yeah, let's get this out in January. Yeah. I mean, you can't even have that many people there. But like, it's still, I was like, more than four is good. But no, I think in total, you could probably have 15 or 16. So um, not that many more places to fill. And I think most people will come back. It'll be good. Well, that is incredible. I'm very happy for you. Um, you my last few that. questions for you, Lydia. Um, what are you reading right now? Do you even have time to read? You're so busy. <laughs> I know, seriously. Um, I feel like I always have five books on my book, my, my bedside right now. And I'm going to try to remember the names of the books that I'm reading right now because I'm reading three simultaneously. And I just finished one. What is the one that I was, oh my God, Trinette, this is not going to come to me right now. Is it fiction or nonfiction? Let's start there. It's fiction. What is, this is what happens to me. I'm such a fast reader that like half the time I'll be happy through a book. I'm like, wait a second. I've already read this book before. (laughs) What is the name of this book? Oh my God. Well, we can come oh back. To I, that think I'm over, I think I'm over podcasted today. I can't even think. Um, yeah, sorry. Continue. It's okay. My last question for you oh, is uh, what piece of music inspires you? Uh, you know what? Honestly, I have to say, I have so many pieces of music that inspire me. I mean, I use music for so many things. If you ask my children, I mean, I am always singing. I grew up in a very musical family. I sang my entire childhood. So I'm always singing. My daughter's always singing. So if I was running, for instance, it would be some like crazy David Guetta techno inspirational. Like if I feel like crying, I'd probably put on a Taylor Swift song and just belt it out. Um, I love classical music. I love jazz. I mean, honestly, I don't think there's a kind of music that I don't like. Like I'll go into like a random spa and hear some like combination of music from that's clearly not Western based and be like, what is this? I just think like the, 
the beauty of music and musical notes being combined together in whatever form it takes is just such a gift and such an amazing thing. It's like the one regret I have in life that I am not a pianist who could just sit and play um, because then maybe I would be Taylor Swift, right? Because I like to sing. So. Well, you can <laughs> take some lessons. Step. I can take some lessons. I think I'd have to also build a career and get a guitar. I have a lot of things to do to become Taylor Swift. Also, recede and age by 10 years. But. Yeah, I think Taylor might be the only Taylor. I, I couldn't get Taylor her. might be the only one. One of one. Yeah, yeah. All right, Lydia, thank you so much for taking time to um, to come on my podcast. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Me too. Trinette, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Of course. All right. And uh, thank you all for listening to another episode of My Time, My Life. And until next time, take care. Bye. My Time, My Life with Trinette Faint is a Floor 51 production.